Well, it's a blessing uh, to be able to open God's word with you all again uh, this morning. I'm Tim Drum, pastor of student ministries here at EBC. Um, it's a joy every week to be able to, to worship all together, is it not? Uh, well, turn with me uh, back to Galatians chapter 5. This morning we'll continue our two-part study of the fruit of com- discipleship in community. Uh, you may have noticed uh, over the summer some younger faces in the service uh, over the last several weeks with children's ministry, some of the Sunday school classes taking a break for the summer. We have, have some younger ones in here. So I consulted one of my finest theology books uh, for their sake. It's a children's book called The Ology. So there it is. It's a good one. This book works through some of the basic tenets of the faith uh, in a way that helps children to understand God's word better. So I'm going to share a little bit from theology with you this morning. It says this, the Bible compares the things that we say and do to fruit. The The good things we do are the good fruit and the sinful things we do are the bad fruit. So what we say and do shows what kind of person we are. When you see apples growing on a tree, you know it's an apple tree. You can also tell a good tree from a bad one by its fruit. If a tree is sick, the fruit is bad to eat. If the tree is healthy, the fruit is good to eat. In the same way, when we walk in step with the Spirit, He makes us good on the inside. So then, God's fruit grows in us love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. But when we're going our own way and giving in to sin, we grow bad things like anger, jealousy, and fighting. You know a tree can't change the kind of fruit it grows or heal itself, but we have the Holy Spirit. Because we still have the disease of sin, sometimes we will grow bad fruit, but the Spirit of God can change us from the inside out. As we ask the Spirit to make us like Jesus, we will notice more and more good things growing in us. Very concise explanation. We could really close in prayer and head home. That is a good explanation of Galatians 5, 22 and 23. It's so good. It's so practical. It's so helpful. I mentioned last week that the fruit of the Spirit is something that is in you as a result of salvation if you're a Christian. You aren't saved by performing or doing the work of the the fruit of the Spirit. That's contrary to the whole book of Galatians. the, The Galatian people struggled with legalism, with works based system of salvation. That is what Paul is preaching against in this letter. He's explaining that because the Spirit now dwells within you, the fruit of the Spirit will manifest in your life. It is not do this to be saved. Rather, if you are saved, this fruit will be evidenced in your life. God is at work in your life to change you, to conform you more and more into Christ's image. But we have to also recognize that the work of sanctification, becoming more like Christ, requires your diligent efforts and straining toward righteousness as well as the supernatural power of God to transform you. It requires both. Salvation is a work of God alone. It is monergistic. It is a work of one, the work of God. You 
are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But sanctification is not monergistic. Sanctification is synergistic. It is a work that is done between both you and God, working together. How do we know this? Well, just from the context here in Galatians, back in verse 16, you're called to walk by the Spirit. This is a command, and in doing so, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. It's a command for you to obey, not just something that God makes happen in you. Additionally, every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit is commanded throughout Scripture. You can find commands for every single one. This is why Paul is constantly throughout the epistles using athletic terminology, competitive terminology. It's a a fight. It is a race. It is a battle in the Christian life. And we must diligently and strenuously work to become more like Christ as the Spirit is working in us. It isn't passive, it is active. So as we continue the fruit of the Spirit, we must recognize areas where we fall short and we must be convicted by that. We have to be convicted by the Spirit through the Word and then strive to change. So last week we began, we looked at the first four, love, joy, peace, and patience. The next mark of a Spirit-indwelled life is kindness. Kindness. Kindness is the desire to be helpful or beneficial to other people. It is a tender concern for one another. It is a desire for the the good and happiness of others. And we see this in God. He demonstrates kindness toward us. Romans chapter two, verse four explains that it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. The Lord, recognizing our need as a result of sin, in his kindness draws us to himself, leading us to repentance. Our sin is damaging to our life. And the Lord recognizes that. Right after that verse in Romans, it explains that wrath is being stored up for the day of judgment for those who are unrepentant. And so God, in his kindness, poured out on those who believe his kindness, which leads to repentance. And then he continues in his kindness to bring conviction and ongoing repentance to conform you more into the image of Christ. This is all the kindness of God toward us. What's profound about this characteristic of God is that he pours that kindness out on us when we completely did not deserve it. Jesus says in Luke 6.35 that God is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. That's you and me this morning. Titus 3, 4 through 6 explains the results of God's kindness. It says, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, what happened when God's kindness appears? He saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God's kindness resulted in our salvation and the rich, generous blessing of the Holy Spirit being poured out on us. The Spirit of God then will, as he dwells within us, produce a similar kind of kindness in us toward other people. 
We should demonstrate this kind of kindness as a result of the kindness that has been shown to us. You see that spelled out clearly in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other. Why? Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. God is the example. This ought to be the attitude of our hearts on a consistent basis. It shouldn't be artificial. It shouldn't be contrived. People walk around churches all the time with fake plastic smiles painted on their face. They, they pretend like they have kindness when really there's no kindness going on in their hearts. There's nothing on the inside. It's a fake kindness. If that's your kindness this morning, you're not demonstrating this fruit of the Spirit. It's not a heart of kindness toward others. Genuine kindness from the heart of a believer comes from the Spirit within him. You're overwhelmed by this kindness that God has so lavished on you, and so it then pours out onto those around you. So what does this look like? Practically, one commentator does a really good job of summarizing. He says, kindness is love in the little things. It is a respect for the feelings and personhood of another. It is thoughtfulness put in action. It is the kind of spirit which builds togetherness and love in situations which could be explosive. Kindness brings blessing and good feelings in places where bitterness and ill will would flourish. What is kindness? Kindness is helping another in need. It is consideration of the relationships between persons. Kindness is conversation which centers on the good qualities of others. Kindness avoids speaking evil. Kindness reaches out to others in trouble or suffering. Kindness supports others. Kindness gives a helping hand or healing touch in time of trouble. Kindness refrains from words which will hurt another or cast doubt on character. Instead, it will speak kindly and hope for the best. That's what kindness looks like. It is Christ-like kindness that sees people with compassion and longs to to be a blessing, longs to be of of help to them. It is Christ-like kindness that pursues the happiness of other people. There's a poison that will quickly kill kindness, and it is called selfishness. Anyone who is too focused on their own desires, their own wants, their own problems, their own lives, are going to be far too busy to pour out kindness on other people. We have to have that Philippians 2 kind of humility that considers others as more important than yourself. It's the kindness we must demonstrate. Next, we see goodness. Goodness, kindness and goodness really go hand in hand. Jerry Bridges explains the relationship between them. He says, kindness is the sincere desire for happiness of others, while goodness is the activity calculated to advance that happiness. Goodness is acting on that kindness that you have toward others. You would like to see their happiness, and goodness is going to be pursuing their happiness. And really, we can't be good in and of ourselves, right? Ultimately, God is the only one who is called good in Scripture. That's what Jesus says in Luke 18. Someone calls him good teacher, and he responds saying, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. 
He is the, the standard of goodness. Our sinful nature must be changed in order for us to demonstrate this goodness. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. You're saved by God. And now that you're saved, now that you are changed by grace through faith, then verse 10 says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So the purpose for which you were created and then recreated in Christ is so that you would demonstrate good works. But doing good for others just doesn't come naturally. We naturally want to be selfish. We naturally want to focus on our own lives, our own needs, our own responsibilities, our own happiness. Why am I gonna pursue the happiness of someone else if I'm not happy? I want what I want. And while we might be more inclined to be kind and to demonstrate this goodness to close friends or maybe family members, we're less likely to be kind or do good to a stranger or even someone that we don't know well or maybe someone that doing good to them would be of little to no benefit to us. Why would I be nice to that person? They're not nice to me. Why would I do good to that person? They're always rude to me. They're always unkind to me. What does Christ say? Luke 6, 35, love your enemy and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Well, that's contrary to the way the world thinks, isn't it? But in, in doing good for others, you show the the kindness and the love of Christ through your behavior. It's a living, walking, breathing picture of the gospel toward them. So the reality, this, this reality of doing good through the power of the Spirit should influence every aspect of your life. At work, at home, at the store, online, when you're here in this building, Everywhere that you have the opportunity to do good to others. You should do good to those around you even if it is of no personal benefit to you. Even if it's, it's not going to result in you gaining something. So evaluate your life. Examine the areas where you could be kind, caring about the happiness of others and, and doing good, working toward helping others enjoy life and pursue Christ as well. Listen to Matthew 5, 13 through 16. These are the words of Christ. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden nor do people put a lamp, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. No, right? But on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are called as a believer to be salt and light 
in this world. You're, to call, you're called to be different than the rest of the world. Salt makes food better. Light gives you the ability to, to see and to live. You're to do that in this world, in a mundane, evil world. You're to make things better. In a world where there is darkness, you are to shine the light of the glory of God for all to see so that they will see it and turn and glorify God in their lives. This happens as you begin demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit to the world around you. When you demonstrate this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and goodness of God, it is so unlike the rest of the world that people see it. Like there's, there's something something different about you, right? It makes the world better. It shines light in darkness. It points the, the world around us to Christ. They'll notice that something's different. Now, the problem is, as we're talking about discipleship in community, is that we can't do this even among ourselves. Like in this room, so how, how do we do that in the community around us if we fail to demonstrate these, these, the, the fruit of the Spirit to one another? If we can't have this love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness toward each other when we're supposed to be on the same page, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, if we can't do that here, we're gonna have a really hard time doing it out there where they're not on the same page. They're not united in spirit. They're not intent on one purpose. That's not gonna pour out out there and point others to Christ if they're looking in here and we're at each other's throats, right? When we neglect the fruit of the Spirit in our own discipleship, in this community, it has far-reaching negative impacts. Our gospel impact in the larger community around us is stifled. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness is next. Faithfulness. This word used here is the same word through faith throughout the New Testament. It's translated faithfulness because it's describing the one who has faith. It's describing a person's dependability. Are they reliable? Are they trustworthy? This too is one of the primary characteristics of God. All throughout scripture, we see uh, this attribute of God, particularly in the Psalms, we see the outworkings of his faithfulness people declaring his faithfulness. Lamentations 3, Jeremiah describes God. He says, great is thy faithfulness. It's used of God so frequently throughout scripture because he is completely trustworthy. He is totally reliable and wholly dependable. Saying that God is faithful is like saying the sun is hot or water is wet or snow is cold, it is God is faithful. It is who he is. In John's vision of Jesus in Revelation 19, 11, Christ is seated on a white horse and he who sat upon it is called faithful and true. It's who God is, 
The entire Bible is a, a work that demonstrates the faithfulness of God from start to finish. And we, as his people, are also called to live lives of faithfulness. There are a lot of people who would claim to be faithful, but in reality demonstrate faithlessness in their lives. Matthew 23, 23, Jesus condemned those who neglected faithfulness, the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provision, provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. For a believer to demonstrate faith, they must have complete self-abandonment and confidence in God who is faithful. It's believing what he says to be true and then living accordingly. Right? It's one thing to say you believe God. It's another thing when you see it in your life. That's faithfulness. This is just base level faith. This is where it begins. It's believing the gospel and then living according to the gospel. You're going to continue to manifest faithfulness in every other area of your life as well. Daniel was a great picture of this, this kind of faithfulness in the midst of an unfaithful people. He could have just given in to the culture, couldn't he have? His enemies examined his life. They watched his every move for the sole purpose of trying to find fault in him. But Daniel 6.4 says this, they could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption in as much as he was faithful and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This is a glimpse into what faithfulness is because of what the passage says that Daniel is not. It says that he was faithful and describes that as not being corrupt or negligent. So if, if faithfulness is not corrupt, it's not negligent, then it's fair, fair to say that faithfulness is characterized by the opposite, which is honesty and integrity. Faithfulness is gonna be characterized by honesty and integrity. If you're going to be an honest person, that means you have to be someone who doesn't lie, someone who isn't deceptive, someone who doesn't tell half-truths, but instead is completely honest. This just makes sense. Right? Honesty goes hand in hand with faithfulness. If faithfulness is being dependable and reliable and trustworthy and loyal, you have to be honest to have those characteristics. If you're a liar, then you're not dependable, right? You're not reliable. You're certainly not trustworthy. Therefore, you're not faithful. You are neither faithful to the Lord nor faithful to those around you. If you lie, scripture says you are a liar. And a liar is, is no longer a liar, not when they stop lying, but when they start telling the truth. When they're characterized by speaking truth. Ephesians 4.25 says, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. A liar is no longer a liar when they begin to tell the truth. And the rationale behind this verse is the community of believers that we're a part of. Because we are members of one another, there should be honesty and integrity among us. It is to our own detriment if that's not the case. 
This means you don't live a double life. You do what you say, you follow through, you are dependable, you are reliable, you are honest. If you have secrets in your life that you hide from people, you're not characterized then by faithfulness. If you're one kind of person at home and another kind of person at work and another kind of person at church, that, does not, that is not a, a character of faithfulness. That is a compartmentalized life. So you need to ask yourself some questions. Are you the kind of person who is completely transparent all of the time? Are you honest? Can those around you count on you? Can they depend on you? Are you faithful in your walk with the Lord? Or is your life a series of different compartments you open up? Evaluate these areas of your life. Be honest with yourself. If you need to grow and you don't identify these areas and begin working on them, then you're hurting not only yourself, but hindering this community. Discipleship in community can't thrive if you are a dishonest person. If you are lacking in this faithfulness. We've seen love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Let's look now at faithfulness. Nope, we just looked at faithfulness. Gentleness. I have it written right here. I just have to read it. Gentleness could also be translated meekness. Uh, These words, gentleness, meekness, they're often looked down upon as though they're characteristics of the weak. People think if you are gentle, if you are meek, then you lack strength. This is simply not true. Meekness does not mean weakness. This is evidenced by the fact, first and foremost, that Christ himself was called gentle. He was called meek. Yet he was not weak at all, was he? He is almighty God with all power at his disposal at any moment in time. He has infinite resources in his hands. He could accomplish anything with a mere command. Gentleness is not weakness. Rather, it is power under control. It is recognizing you may have the ability to exert power or dominance or superiority over another, but you control that power and instead demonstrate gentleness in serving others. The word is used frequently throughout the New Testament to describe how we should speak with one another. It's very commonly attached to how we use our words. Whether we're correcting people or teaching others or sharing the gospel, we're to do so with gentleness. This is what Paul says the very next chapter in Galatians 6, verse 1. He says, brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Now, this isn't normally the tendency of most people. It's not, this is not your normal tendency when you're correcting another person. Right? It's, it's a lot easier to do so out of frustration or with a heavy hand or being abrasive. I can't believe you did that. 
Gentle correction calmly explains the fault biblically. The reason we tend to react harshly when we're correcting others is simply because of our own pride. We know right, and they did wrong, so we're going to let them know. We're going to make sure you see this. Right? What you got going on right here? It's not good. This is bad. This isn't loving concern for others. It's arrogant harshness. We're called to gentleness. Sometimes we respond out of shock that someone would do something wrong. It's like, just really forgets the reality that we're all sinful people, right? We lash out rather than correcting with gentleness. Instead, we just communicate our own disapproval and astonishment rather than, hey, this is a spiritual problem between you and the Lord. We shouldn't be surprised when people sin. It's important to note, however, just because you confront someone, if you do so with a spirit of gentleness, it does not necessarily mean that it's going to be received with a spirit of gentleness. You may confront someone with all the the love and meekness you could possibly muster, and yet still be accused of being harsh and judgmental just because that person didn't like that their sin was being called out. You should still be faithful in those situations to confront sin with gentleness. We're also to be gentle in how we share the gospel. 1 Peter 3.15 explains, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Far too often, evangelistic opportunities explode into arguments instead of productive conversations. I think when that happens, it's almost always the fault of the one who is evangelizing. It takes two people to argue. I'm not talking about persecution. If you're sharing the gospel and the other person starts to get aggressive, but you remain gentle, then they're just acting like an unbeliever. That's not a surprise. Like Christ, who when he was reviled, uttered no threats, so too our communication of the the beauty of the gospel must be done with gentleness and wisdom. We shouldn't be surprised when people respond negatively to the gospel. Jesus said that they would. Jesus said that we would be persecuted. So when people get angry about sharing the gospel, we can't respond with harshness or or sarcasm or biting comments. People may say things that, that hurt your feelings, and so you want to lash back. We have to continue instead in gentleness. So examine how you interact with people. Maybe you should ask your family, ask some of your friends if you respond to this way. Sit down and have a serious conversation with them and ask, are you a gentle person? Am I a a gentle person? Do I speak to you with, with gentleness? Do I confront sin with gentleness? Ask those who are closest to you and then be ready for their answer because it may not be what you want to hear. The implications of our gentleness for discipleship in community are enormous. This should color our interactions with each other. Everything we do toward one another should be characterized in this way. 
Think of the loving benefit this kind of gentleness would, would spur on in our community here. Unbelievers would see the love of Christ in us. They would do what First Peter talks about and ask us about the hope that is within us. But oftentimes they don't ask because they don't see it. Look at Christians and they, they see a, an arrogant, better than thou attitude instead of a, a loving gentleness and care. The believers around us would receive that loving correction, needing to grow in Christ rather than the, the condemnation and judgment that, that often gets spewed around in Christian circles. This gentleness is going to lead to a thriving discipleship community. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and finally, self-control. Self-control, this is one of the most practical, I think, of the fruit of the Spirit. Self-control is the restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires. It's literally controlling yourself in every aspect of your life. This is a new ability that you gain in Christ, as are all of the others as well. The Spirit now living in you, you are able to demonstrate self-control. Unbelievers are not able to control themselves in this way. And of all of them, you might push back on this one. Like, Tim, I know some really uh, self-controlled people. I know people who live very regimented lives very structured. That's not the kind of self-control that we're talking about here. They may control the choices they make and the sins that they choose, but they're ultimately driven by their own desires. They're driven by what they feel is going to benefit them most and bring them the most pleasure in their lives. They make decisions based on self-preservation or self-promotion, not based on the glory of God. That's not self-control from the spirit of God. In Christ, we're given a new heart. We are given new desires and the Holy Spirit within us. And this change in our life where Christ makes us a new creation allows us to now make choices for the glory of God, to be self-controlled when our flesh would otherwise run in another direction. The self-control applies not only to making right choices, doing right things, but it also applies to making choices not to overindulge. Self-control is a characteristic of someone that is not overindulgent in the choices that they make. It's recognizing that you are a new creature in Christ, but that you still have old urges old desires that are going to pull at you. And not all of those desires are necessarily sinful desires. Not all of them are, are going to be sin against God. But they're not all profitable either. Self-control avoids excesses of anything. Paul talks about this with the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 6.12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. We have the tendency to overindulge 
in a variety of things, whether it's food or TV or video games or books. Like, Tim, no, not books. Books are good. Yeah, books. Maybe home decor. It's true, isn't it? You just want to pull into Hobby Lobby? We're going to go to Hobby Lobby after church. Not anymore. <laughs> we have a natural bent toward over-excess, don't we? Like, ah, it's not a bad thing. We have to recognize with Paul that there's a lot of things in our life that are okay to do. That there's, there's nothing necessarily sinful or unlawful about it unless it is something that we become mastered by. something becomes so excessively indulged in that we feel like we have to have it. Man, I've got to have that. We've been mastered by it, if that's the case. But Paul describes self-control a little bit later in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. He says, I discipline my body and I make it my slave. We need this kind of attitude that persists in doing what will bring about the most fruit in our own lives, the greatest blessing to those around us, and the most glory to God. That should be the grid through which we filter every decision that we make. Is this the decision that's, that's best for my spiritual health? Is this decision going to be a blessing to those around me? Is this decision gonna glorify God? Self-control not only says no to the things that you should not do, but it also says yes to the things that you should. It's self-control that you exercise to get up and do your devotions each day, to be in God's word regularly, to be in prayer regularly. There have been countless times, I know you guys don't experience this, countless times that I get up and it's like, I don't want to sit down and read my Bible. I don't want to do it. Right? I just want to sit on the couch and eat chips. <laughs> but maybe you've experienced this. You sit down anyway, and you read God's word, and he reveals beautiful things from his word. You find yourself, by the end of your time reading, you'd be just so thankful to the Lord for that time, so blessed by the truths that we have the privilege to have in our hands. It's not just the things that we do. It's not just the things that we don't do. It also has a lot to do with our emotions and our thoughts as well. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's self-controlled thinking. It involves diligent, intentional, purposeful thinking. It's not allowing your mind to wander off into areas where it shouldn't be wandering. It's taking your thoughts captive. Think about that language here. It's taking something captive. When, you, when it comes to, to your mind, it requires purposeful control. I'm reminded of when I used to ride horses with my friends in, in Texas. We'd go out into these big, huge, open fields um, and just we would just ride them around. It's like they're so powerful. It's like a ride, It's like a giant muscle just running through a field. It's amazing. And it's important 
that you keep control of it. You hang on to the reins, right? You don't jump up on a horse and let go of the reins and like, woo, it's going to take off and you're going to be in big trouble. Right? The horse is going to run wild. You no longer have any control. It's going wherever it feels like going. You don't know where it's going. You have to keep the reins. You have to keep control so you don't get hurt. The same is true of your emotions, your actions, your thoughts. If you allow them to run crazy, however they want, then you're in for some trouble. You have to exercise self-control to ensure that your thoughts, your actions are in obedience to Christ. And you all struggle with this in different ways. Right? We could get uh, any, any number of, of group uh, of you together and it would, would go around the circle. Every one of you would struggle in different ways with self-control. Some of you struggle with that excessive indulgence. You can't understand why there aren't more donuts at the connections desk. Some of you struggle with your thoughts. Your purity of mind is a real problem. It's a constant battle. Maybe your anger gets quickly out of control or sadness takes over and controls you. Jealousy maybe runs wild in your mind, consumes you. All of these are areas that must be taken captive and made obedient to Christ. This is difficult as it is, and it's quite frankly impossible without the Holy Spirit. Can't happen. Your self-control is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit living in you. It is that spiritual root that produces spiritual fruit. Listen to what Peter says about self-control, Second Peter 1, 5 through 8. Now for this reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And get this, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that self-control is in accordance with the knowledge that we have. Our self-control should be fueled by our knowledge of Scripture. The truths we know should motivate and inform the choices that we make. And our self-control must be characterized by perseverance in spite of difficulty, in spite of trial, temptation, failure, anything that might pull us aside, we persevere and continue in self-control and being faithful in controlling ourselves. My favorite part is in verse eight. It's for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If these qualities are yours, he says, you're neither useless nor unfruitful. And the beauty is that the fruit of the Spirit is yours if you have the Spirit living in you. Amen. These qualities are yours and they will continue to grow as time goes on through your diligent striving and God's work by the Spirit within you. You have to submit yourself to the Spirit, walk by the Spirit according to the truth we have in Scripture. 
love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the fruit of discipleship in community. It is the fruit that will be born as a result of a spirit-filled congregation living, walking by the spirit in our day-to-day life together. It's the result of a spirit-filled congregation calling one another to manifest the fruit of the spirit together for the benefit of one another. It's a result of our love for putting one another ahead of ourselves. Loving each other is what's going to put Christ on display to the community around us so that they too might come to salvation in Christ alone and be able to partake of this discipleship and community that we have the opportunity of benefiting from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, for these truths. Thank you for your spirit, Lord. Thank you that you've not left us in our flesh to figure it out alone, but you guide us by your word. You convict us by your word, through the spirit who dwells within us. Lord, we we praise you. We give you all the glory. Lord, we acknowledge that if left to ourselves, we're gonna run after the flesh every day. So help us, God, to walk by the spirit and to not gratify the desires of the flesh for your glory, for our benefit and the benefit of the body of Christ around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.